Greetings both history fans and film fans. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at History and Film. It's a good way to know when new episodes drop or just see other interesting history or film tidbits. And if you have any other questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to email me at simmons at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. We are kicking off in full today our quest to cover all of American history, or at least the political entity of the United States of America, in 100 or so movies in chronological order. Uh, we did kind of do a Halloween episode to bring us from Europe to North America in the very, I was going to say underwhelming film, Valhalla Rising. Well, it was disappointing. I don't know if underwhelming, it's, so, it's such a bold film. It seems weird calling it underwhelming, but I felt ultimately yeah. underwhelmed. I don't know if I would say underwhelming because I don't know, I didn't really have crazy high expectations. That's true. That's true. I didn't really expect anything. I just, I kind of just expected a, you know run-of-the-mill Viking sort of adventure movie. Because I didn't know anything about it other than, I guess I probably should have thought, oh, it's Nicholas Whiting Refn. Maybe there there is probably going to be some, like, a little bit of weirdness. But anyway, we're done talking about Valhalla <laughs> Rising. And we're going to get into the, basically the John Smith Pocahontas legend, uh, looking at two different films today. Logan watched The New World by... Terrence Malick, and I watched the animated Disney film Pocahontas from the 90s because I didn't want to rewatch The New World. For for the first time. For the first time, which, yeah, Logan thinks is a huge deal. (laughs) But having been a junior in high school in 1995, I'm like, yeah. I didn't get to that one. Yeah, we did we we did talk about that a little bit I think off air and maybe it bears repeating here but mm. th- that is a that's a good excuse cuz like <laughs> juniors in high school were not going to see like animated Disney movies like you would go see a Pixar movie today. Right. Now I do think didn't we talk about that was the same year Toy Story came out and I did see Toy Story at the time. I don't know if I saw it in the theater right. but I saw it like as it came out on VHS. Uh, I w- I would have seen it at at home and stuff because it was popular and I was I wasn't like too cool for school and if this movie actually was like considered really good and everyone's it's in the zeitgeist and everyone's watching Toy Story. I watched Toy Story, but <laughs> Pocahontas yeah. wasn't that revolutionary. Although I will say when it got to because the movie is very kind of meh. Like it seems it's like the least ambitious Disney movie I've ever seen. Like it just mm-hmm. it's like they're not even trying. But then it gets to the song. Like the song from Pocahontas, I was like, "Wait, that's from Pocahontas." The I get, I can't sing, but it's like the uh, "Colors of the Wind" song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the yeah. Did you ever hear the wolf cry? The the, the, yeah. the new corn moon moon. And we're like, I'm like, oh, I know this song. <laughs> like I had no idea it was from Pocahontas. Yeah, I think is that that's the movie's only Oscar, isn't it? Or did it get another one for something did it, else? Oh, did it win the Oscar for that song? That song, I know that song was best, won the Oscar for, like, best song that year. Oh. Because, of course, it did. Like, it's a banger. It is a good song <laughs> in a very, very average or below average movie. Yes. I didn't realize it won the Oscar, which would make sense, I guess, probably why I was so familiar with that song without having... Yeah. It won two Oscars. What the heck? This is an Oscar-winning movie. <laughs> well, what are the Oscars, though? Best song, and then... And what's the other one? The, the score overall. So just oh, the two okay. music So the ones. music. Yeah. And the music is really good. True, true. To be fair. Yeah, actually, you can almost redo the whole thing because basically nothing in the dialogue matters. 
you could almost do this as a silent film, and it actually might have been better because then you then you can fire Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> this was before they knew he was uh, not a great guy. Because yeah, basically this is like simultaneous with Braveheart. Like he's doing Braveheart and being John Smith here all, all at the same time. Oh yeah, this is early '90s Mel Gibson. Man, he's, he's yeah, it's huge. Uh, the Rewatchables uh, podcast talks about the, what do they call it? Apex Mountain. Basically, this is probably Mel Gibson's Apex Mountain, like the the peak of his his career, and basically just clout in Hollywood and everything. So uh, history wise, we're gonna kind of do. Okay, I do want to kind of set up some introductory stuff that's going on in the world as we head into the events in these films. And then I'll probably talk about Pocahontas first because it is so simple. It's a Disney film. There's probably less to talk about, and then you can kind of piggyback into what the New World covers that is different and or not covered at all in Pocahontas. Does that kind of sound good? Yeah. So what we are focusing on. In this project, the history of the United States of America as a political entity, I still want to give a little bit of time this week and actually next time when we get into like Mayflower stuff with the Native Americans, because ultimately they were living here first and then become American citizens by virtue of already living here. So it's still worth talking about them as a people, even though they're not necessarily part of the founding of the United States of America politically. That's probably fair to say, right? Sure. So... The, the whole land bridge theory, we, I probably talked about before when I did do an episode on early native tribes when they kind of hit the timeline uh, initially. Uh, Kings of the Sun, I think, was the name of, of the film. So the, everyone kind of knows the whole theory of the land bridge from Asia connecting Russia to Alaska and, and native peoples kind of migrated from Asia to North America. And that was kind of just the theory for decades based on all the archaeological evidence and things they were kind of it was it was a good, it was a good theory that kind of everyone bought into, which was basically confirmed when they were able to start DNA testing over the last 10 20 years. They basically confirmed from the from fossil records now they could actually do DNA testing all these things and basically oh sure enough we're right but they could also get more specific and say okay yes it was 25,000 years ago when Asia and Russian were connected and uh, I did watch a video that basically said calling it a land bridge is maybe not the best term because a bridge sounds kind of like narrow and fleeting or whatever it's like no 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 Russia and Alaska were just connected like they were together like <laughs> the analogy the guy in the video used was Calling uh, the Bering, you know, Bering Land Bridge or whatever a bridge is like calling France the bridge you take to cross from Spain to Germany. Like, oh, okay, they were it's like huge pushed together. Yes, yes, it was. It was just connected in almost the entire width of Alaska. They were just connected, and then the water mm-hmm. rose, and they became uh, disconnected. So then that populates tribes in North America for a thousand years, and then about. 13,000 years ago. Now, here's something you probably couldn't get from the initial guesses, and you kind of needed the DNA to figure this out. About 13,000 years ago, there's a split in the DNA record that kind of separates the North American tribes from the South American tribes. And you kind of see that, like, okay, about 13,000 years ago, this group went down to South America, and the other group kind of stayed in North America. And there's kind of a genetic split in the DNA record. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they could pinpoint that to 13,000 years ago. And then, yeah, and then we might get into more uh, details uh, next week when we get into like the the Mayflower and and all the uh, native tribes that the pilgrims were encountering, and we will get into some of the tribes here. But uh, that's kind of the where the people that already lived here came from. So Pocahontas opens in 
London, and it says at the bottom 1607, uh, which is already technically a little bit off, but not actually a huge deal. So the Virginia Company ship that John Smith and John Ratcliffe were on sailed in December of 1606. (laughs) So basically just a month before 1607, and then they ultimately got to Virginia in 1607. So close enough. The Virginia Company was basically any potential colony had to kind of set itself up as today we'd probably call it like an LLC or whatever. You had to like officially kind of become a sanctioned company. You know, the government's giving you approval to go and establish a colony with certain parameters in mind. Like, okay, you can go between this parallel and this parallel on the map, find an area within there, and you have a max allowed settlement of 100 square miles. And like that's your kind of mandate, and you get the stamp from the government, and you're you're good to go. And kind of all over the place here, um, as always, because I want I kind of want to do the background of these stuff first, right? Yeah, and this it's relevant to both of our yes, movies. yes, right, right. All this stuff kind of will go for the new world as well. Yeah, let me let me talk about before we get into the film because a lot of John Smith's excitement in his life took place before he ever gets on this ship to head over to the New World. So I do want to actually go... Normally we would talk about the characters after, but so much of John Smith comes before he goes to the New World that I kind of want to talk about John Smith first before we get into the movies here. Okay. <laughs> if that's all right. <laughs> so John Smith is kind of crazy and actually worth mentioning out here too. So we did kind of wrap up our World History Project and we did this elaborate... 32 person tournament to determine the most interesting person in history and what i thought we could do because we kind of had a lot of fun doing it and we kind of would like to four or five years from now do one on american history as well but now that we kind of know where we're going i kind of thought as we go through each movie here for american history we could kind of be brainstorming nominees as we go as opposed to with world history we kind of did it after the fact we're like oh hey who would we nominate so I'm going to say that the first nominee for the most interesting person in American history is John Smith. <laughs> okay. Does it count? He's not American. Oh, that's it. Oh, so you're right. We do have to kind of determine the criteria here then, huh? I don't know. That's a good point. We might debate that later. Or actually, we could debate that now <laughs> because if we're going to nominate people as we go. So I guess I would argue if you're going to say, well, no, he wasn't American. So you're saying only people who sort of George Washington count? Like at one point, like if you're... Well, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, because he was actually lived in the United States of America. He was the first president of the United States of America. Okay, well, okay. So, what about someone who? I just off my head. I can't think of a specific example. Someone who died before 1776, but was also fundamental to the foundation of the United States of America. Not that I have a specific example, but I'm thinking of like a hypothetical founding-ish father. Uh, People founding universities and stuff before the country was actually founded. I don't know. So, well, but that's different. So that that would be borderline. I feel like you could you could maybe debate that. But, like, you wouldn't say that Leif Erikson is, like, the one of the most interesting Canadians of all time. Well, again, are we saying Americans or in American history? Yeah, you're right. That's just, Okay, there you, oh, here's, here's one. Uh, well, yeah, like a Lafayette. What about, like, a Lafayette? So you're saying no because he's mm. not, not an American. But he's also, like, fundamental to the Revolutionary uh, War. I don't know. That That is a tough one. Let's put a pin in that. Yeah, Lafayette is actually an interesting guy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I did just see there's actually a new book about Lafayette out. Uh, And actually, I was subbing for a history teacher just this week. And he had a book on his shelf. And it said, like, the hero of two worlds. And I saw, like, a picture of someone in, like, revolutionary 
you know, in the uh, kind of outfit and the wig. And I was like, oh, I wonder if that's Lafayette. And then sure enough, like in the like on the subtitle, it was like, oh, the story of the you know Lafayette. And I'm like, yeah, I need to check out that book. So we'll put a pin in that for now because <laughs> you could definitely argue both ways. Anyway, so John Smith, we don't know exactly when he was born. The baptism records show that he was baptized in 1580. So he was probably, you know, anywhere from zero to two or three around 1580. So we know roughly how old he was. So he would have grown up on stories of Sir Francis Drake and all of his adventures, who was only about 40 years older right. than him. And Smith's dad, though, was just a farmer, a successful one, but just a farmer, and kind of just planned on his son following in his footsteps and taking over the family trade. But again, kind of growing up on these stories in the world of exploration at this time, John Smith just wanted action. Like he just, he couldn't sit home and farm. That just was not how he was made. So... His dad died when he was about 16. He then moves to mainland Europe and becomes a mercenary. And he's like fighting with the French forces of Henry IV. And that's the same Henry IV who was Henry of Navarre, who's getting married to the daughter of Catherine de' Medici in the film Intolerance. So there's kind of a connection there. So yeah, he's a French mercenary. He embraced the idea of self-improvement. He's reading Marcus Aurelius and Machiavelli and learning Italian. In 1600, he was shipwrecked on his way to the Middle East. He wanted to go and fight the Turks, fight the Ottomans, but he gets shipwrecked. Uh, He's rescued by a band of merchants slash pirates and joins with them for a few months, gets rich, then is traveling around Italy for a while. And then finally, uh, 1601, again, all that just kind of took a few months. He heads to finally fight the Turks alongside Austrian forces. Again, he's just kind of getting hired out as a mercenary he's just a guy that wants action because he's so well read and kind of self-educated he was able to kind of go up through the ranks really quickly and impress all of his commanding officers with just like ideas that they hadn't thought of before like he just they they tricked the turks into thinking like uh there's oh there's an attack going on over here like he basically used he said a combination of like you know gunpowder a sheet and candlelight basically they came with like some little trick of the light to make it look like there was an attack happening over to the west and the Turks all head over there to see what's going on. And then the Austrians and John Smith swoop into their camp and defeat them because of this trick that he came up with. And then he also comes up with like these, makes these big bombs he calls fiery dragons that the Austrians hadn't seen before. So just kind of little, little tricks like that. He's just kind of bright and innovative and, you know, ends up getting, getting in command of some soldiers and all that kind of stuff. And then there's this protracted, I'm talking real, I'm, I always talk fast, but I feel like I'm talking even faster than usual, just I, I think John Smith is so fascinating. Uh, during a protracted siege, and I don't, I, I don't know what Turkish city it would have been or whatever, and it, it probably does say online here, but basically the Turks were getting bored as they're being besieged, and so like one of them like challenges, okay, single combat, let's do this the old-fashioned way, uh, someone come fight me. Like, so the army's just kind of like at a stalemate and they just kind of want to do a single combat. And John Smith ends up getting the, being the guy like, okay, I'll fight you. So like, there's like single combat between John Smith and this Turk and John Smith wins, beheads him. And then they like send out two more. And so like basically back to back to back, he beats three Turks in single combat while everyone's just kind of around cheering and they kind of keep sending more because I mean, I don't know the exact why, but it was like, oh, well, that guy was the commander and they they had to kind of kind of try to keep saving face, but you know John Smith keeps beating them and ends up with right. three Turkish heads. And <laughs> the Austrians, like Austrian, you know, leaders are like, "Dude, you're a badass." And the guy like kind of not knights him exactly, maybe or kind of knights him anyway. It, it was a big deal at the time, and 
John has these kind of humble origins, but basically the Austrian guys, like as far as I'm concerned, you're now a gentleman of higher standing and your new your family crest should be like have like three head three Turkish heads on it, which you did. If you go to the John Smith Wikipedia page page, it has his family crest or whatever, or the seal banner of John Smith, and it has three heads on it. Yeah, because of the three Turkish guys he beheaded on this day, and everyone was like so impressed with them. So is the stuff Oh, it is. It's literally like three dudes' heads. Yeah, it's three heads. You're like, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, that's the three guys he decapitated after defeating them in one-on-one combat. <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. Again, I, I think I, I mentioned I wanted to do this on John Smith because I've researched some of this stuff 20 years ago, and I just thought it was fascinating in, then and just you know, by the whole idea that John Smith had all his adventures and did all his crazy stuff. So, oh, and then, like, J- Jamestown's almost an asterisk at the end of his life. Is that stuff, like, corroborated by other sources? Because isn't don't a lot of historians think that he made up a lot of this like Jamestown stuff? Yeah, so he was. I mean, he almost certainly made up a lot of the stuff like with him. Well, between him and Pocahontas, it's like yes, that's yes. almost not even a historical debate anymore. Like that's almost certainly completely made up. Right. So he was. He's very. He's very much a T. E. Lawrence type, where he did a lot of crazy stuff, but also was a shameless self promoter. Uh, like John Smith okay. wrote volumes about his adventures. Yes. And a lot of people kind of rolled their eyes at a lot of those things because he definitely kind of made right. himself the hero of it all. And there was definitely, there is definitely reason to question some things, but a lot of it has been corroborated by historians. Okay. So, yes, he was arrogant. Yes, he probably embellished, but also he wasn't necessarily making up everything whole cloth. Gotcha. Okay. Very that, much like T. Lawrence. I was going to say, that's a, that's a, that's actually a good. That's a good comparison. Actually, a lot of the stuff I pulled from, there's an article on the National Endowment for the Humanities, and it says, okay, so this is quoting from an article on the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, Most of what we know about uh, Smith's life before Jamestown comes from basically a book he wrote. He provides such a daredevil account of his life that critics have sometimes accused him of exaggerating his exploits. But by comparing Smith's own account with letters and documents of the time, scholars dot, 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 you know, have confirmed his story and clarified it. It is an amazing story. So it's probably pretty accurate. Again, something like this, I think, I mean, the fact that the three heads on the banner, I guess, I mean, who's he, it'd be a bold thing to make up when other, they could just ask the Austrian commander and he'd be like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then uh, in 1602, again, all this is happening like, bam, 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 bam. Like, remember, it's like 1600 was when he was uh, shipwrecked and remember, he's just born around 1580. So basically he's, 1607 when we're saying he goes to jamestown he's basically 27 years old and i feel like they always cast like a 40 45 year old to play him it's like no he was in his late 20s probably when he went to when he went to jamestown yeah basically in his early 20s as he's doing everything that we're talking about here uh in 1602 he's injured in battle and left for dead and he was found where is that uh still over in the ottoman empire here somewhere I, i don't actually know specifically if he was ever actually in constantinople but just kind of in in the Ottoman Empire, uh, and it is the Turks that find him, and they kind of keep him as a slave slash pet. That's probably not the best way to say it, but like he's he's high enough that like some Turkish noblewoman supposedly wants to marry him as he gets kind of cleaned up and starts learning Turkish and stuff. But then uh, he's kind of just there for months working as a slave and gets fed up at one point. Like his master like starts to like beat on him or something, and so he kills his master, puts on his clothes, and rides off on his horse. And ends up escaping back around to England and arrives in England to find the country very excited about this New World thing. 
That's like a, a Genghis Khan move. Killing your mat, killing the person yeah. that captured you, stealing a horse. That's solid. Yeah, and actually, so and what I didn't really even get into, and I don't know enough about it exactly. So he's kind of fighting with the Austrians against the Ottomans, but also this is this times out with like. So we talked about in Vlad Tepes all the you know Hungary was kind of the, it was kind of the Hungarian Empire. Remember, that was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's kind of one thing with Wallachia in between and then the Ottoman Turks. So when he's fighting with the Austrians, that's also kind of the Hungary, Austro-Hungary stuff. And anyway, the reason I was researching this like 20 years ago was he was kind of contemporary to Elizabeth Bathory and all the stuff going on at the time, too. And like he's going to like Transylvania to get money that's owed to him. So like John Smith is actually kind of tied into this kind of Transylvania, Elizabeth Bathory in Hungary kind of timeline. Basically, I was looking to trying to write a story about Elizabeth Bathory kind of back before she was as well-known as she is today, although she's not super widely known. She's not necessarily a household name yet. Anyway, and John Smith comes up as someone who could possibly have been fighting alongside her husband in some of these battles against the Turks. And I'm just like, okay, that's kind of crazy just to think that you're writing a story about Elizabeth Bathory and John Smith's a character, and I've never heard anybody bring him up as those as those rules kind of overlapping. And how's that time out with uh, the Dracula stuff? Oh, just timeline wise. Yeah, just timeline wise. Well, I don't remember off the top of my head when when uh, Vlad Tepes Dracula was only alive from 1430 ish to 1477. Okay, so all this is about 100 150 years after. Vlad Tepes. Okay, that's what I was trying to figure out. Yeah. But again, a lot of these people are, they're all kind of related though. Uh, but not John Smith, but like the people he was fighting with would have been kind of the then oh. ancestors of Tepes's people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And certainly the Ottomans that that were holding Vlad and his brother. Yeah, It was yeah. his brother, right? They were both held in captivity, right. kind of. They were uh, almost like a ward. That's how he learned Turkish and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Not real, like a. What is his his dad? Well, no, you're right. You're right. His dad, I think, was a ward of the Hungarian Empire, and then you're right. Vlad was a ward of the Ottomans. Yeah, you're right. That's how he learned Turkish. Yeah, yeah. right. That's how he was able to do the sneak attack stuff. Yes, yes. Anyway, yeah. So like all of that happens, and then he shows up in England, gets back basically not long, oh, few months, few years before he goes to Jamestown, and. He still wasn't really no one. So he did all this crazy stuff, but no one in England. He was still still low born, and the the class system in England was still king at the time. So he wasn't really respected in England. But he had money from his basically his mercenary work and his piracy. So he was able to join the Virginia Company because he was willing to put his own money on the line for the expedition. Expedition, and he also had made friends with some of the right people. Like he he befriended Henry Hudson and people like that that were kind of exploring the new world. So he made the right connections, had the money, gets on the ship. So that kind of gets us to then the beginning of the film where they just kind of say, hey, here's John Smith and we're going to get started on all our adventures. And I think they even kind of say as they're loading up the ship, got to make sure we don't leave without John Smith. Can't fight any Indians without John Smith. And I'm just thinking... Uh, yeah, the uh, the kind of overt racism in this film is uh, is pretty high. Now, at the same time, they recognize it. They recognize that it is a problem with the white Englishman being kind of super arrogant. But they also paint John Smith as this virtuous hero when he really is just a 
kind of self-interested mercenary and adventure seeker. Yeah, and also was like never romantically involved with Pocahontas because when he was captured by her father. Oh, she was a little girl. She was nine years old. Right. It's, it's very much like what we saw in Braveheart with, uh, ironically, also played by Mel Gibson, where he is uh, they, with the Isabella of France thing and the timeline just doesn't work out. Yeah, so same thing here. Uh, there was no romantic uh, relationship between uh, between them. So yeah, we also, and I don't know if they show this in the New World, but there is, actually, they, I think they do show more if I kind of remember. So there are storms uh, as they as they cross. So the Disney film just shows the one ship, the Susan Constant, but they actually crossed with three ships the Virginia Company had at this time, and there were storms along the way. So it was only supposed to take about a month to cross, but it ends up taking five months to cross. And so the tensions are really high. The conditions are not good because you're running out of food. Just because when a, when a crossing is taking five times as long as expected, yeah, that's not good. What the Disney movie leaves out that I feel like maybe they did do in the New World, they uh, Smith ends up in chains for the last part of the trip. Do they do that in the New World? Yes. Okay. He actually almost gets hung. Okay. Right when they get, sorry, almost gets hanged. Oh. <laughs> right when they get to the New World, and then he's like let go. But he's, it's yeah. kind of like a you're on thin ice, buddy, type situation. Yeah, and that that seems that seems pretty accurate. It's again, the records aren't super great on something specific like that. But that's what you saw there in the New World. Then is more accurate than what we see in Pocahontas, where he's basically a hero the moment he gets on board the ship. It's like no, 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 he was low born. They did not respect him on this ship, and it's more like what you saw in the New World with him. And then so basically though, he was also because he was arrogant and entitled for a man of his quote station. Yeah, a lot of the people who were higher born didn't like him just because he was, you know, I guess you would say uppity. Is, that, mm-hmm. is it okay to use that term? They thought he was a little too big for his britches. Yes, there you go. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and of course, then from from everything we just talked about, it's like, yeah, he's he's way more experienced and worldly than most of these other guys. And yeah, the, the social class dynamic ends up being a problem kind of throughout. Even once they're in Jamestown, the social class thing that the Disney movie obviously just ignores completely was a huge deal. Um, you had like the gentleman refusing to do any kind of manual labor. 50 men died of a combination of malnutrition, disease, and exposure within the first six months of them getting to Virginia. And so this is kind of why they had to start trading with the local tribes for food and they had to forage and hunt as best they could. There's actually a scene in the New World where they talk about that pretty directly about the guys not wanting to do anything. Basically thinking that they're kind of like above working and they just, they've had everything done for them their, I guess, their whole life. So they yeah talks about uh, they would rather eat their fish raw than go get some firewood and make a fire and cook their food. Huh. Yeah. And, and so, okay. So now we're kind of one of the movies. So the, so the Disney movie... Again, it's super, super simple. They show up. The antagonist, and I'll get to John John Ratcliffe. I, I can try to talk about John Ratcliffe a little more on the on the after side. I thought that that was that his, that that's not a real person. Oh, he's a real person. Oh, John John Ratcliffe is a real person. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was the Christopher Newport was the real person. So they leave him out of the Disney film. So they kind of just use John Ratcliffe as a proxy slash antagonist for the disney film because you needed a villain so you have to have the guy who's super greedy and doesn't want to do anything but they just kind of used he wasn't necessarily a great guy but he wasn't also what we see in the disney film they they just kind of used that name but he was a real person gotcha okay okay and uh his real life did not go as near as well as the 
the Disney movie went, and the Disney movie didn't go well. <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll we'll get to that because that kind of gets after after the timeline of the of the film here. So yeah, Disney movie, super simple. He runs across a po- Pocahontas. They're like secretly falling in love outside of. It's almost like a Romeo and Juliet thing where the tri- the you have the the colonists and the Powhatan tribe, and then in secret, John Smith and Pocahontas have like stumbled across each other and keep meeting up and start falling in love just because they're so fascinated with each other. Then when the tribes and the colonists start to conflict, it, you know, it becomes this Romeo and Juliet situation where then he, you know, he's captured and she throws herself in front of him because she's in love with him and doesn't want him killed. And that's basically the movie. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> seriously, not much, not much happens. And like, and then the subs and then the antagonist, John Ratcliffe is obsessed with finding gold, which wasn't a thing. Like, Right. Sure, they're always hoping maybe there's gold here, but yeah. there wasn't any expectation that there would be, and no. they it wasn't the goal. And when there wasn't, it was like, oh shucks, and then you just move along about your business. Like, right? It was a complete afterthought. Versus the Disney film makes it seem like the driving force of everything Reckless Which, doing. And that's like you know the colonization of the Americas in general. Uh, there was a lot of like gold and silver seeking it was well i mean it was an economic thing they weren't doing this for right, fun but it was not, it was economically driven not yeah. in new england well that's true that's that's mostly uh further south thing oh that's well that's what we'll get to next week i guess yeah yeah although they in the in the new world there is a scene where there's like all those guys digging on the beach like instead of setting up their is like looking for food or setting up their fortifications or whatever they're like digging on the beach just looking in, for gold yeah and john okay. smith basically like chides them saying like hey like you've seen the natives already do they have any gold are any of them wearing any gold right like you're wasting your right time. which in the disney film they are wearing gold right yeah but again i don't know that they would the new world's probably more accurate on, on that as well so that yeah that's basically the disney film i i, I definitely had and i i, I do want to talk about radcliffe and uh, well, let me talk about let me talk about the powhatan chief here actually <laughs> before we get to him why don't you... Do you want to talk about Pocahontas? <laughs> let's talk about Pocahontas. <laughs> All right. Let's tell us about Pocahontas so, and get into the new world here. Before we start, let me just say that Pocahontas, the movie, is very famously not historically accurate. Right. And New World is like only barely more historically accurate. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because it still focuses on the fake romance, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It focuses on the fake romance... It also condenses the timeline pretty heavily. Although I'm also not really sure about that because it's a Terrence Malick movie, so I'm not really sure what the timeline was. Okay. Because you would have like just like John Smith walking in a marsh would be like the same amount of time that would be you know <laughs> you would see that for the same amount of time that like then several months would pass in the next scene. Right, right. So, and he's more about the artistic abstraction than the actual like beat by beat plot points. Yeah. Yes. There is a lot of narration and not a ton of actual dialogue. Mm. And it's like this very, it's not even like narration like in the summer of 1620, we did this and this and this. It's like, oh, life is dark and dreary. <laughs> I look at this and I see the tree, and it's like, uh, I don't know. Ter- Listen, Terrace Malick movies, I can appreciate the artistry. 
I appreciate the fact that he has a very distinct visual style with like the deep focus lenses and the, you know, the wide, like wide angle shots and the, they're pretty movies, like they look good, but they're really hard to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think he's pretentious nonsense. I, I, I don't like Terrence Malick's movies. Uh, the, the the best one is the Badlands from the 70s when he was less so that. He's very polarizing because there are people that are like oh, yeah. Terrence Malick fans that love that stuff. People that were like, Tree of Life was the best film of the year or best film of the decade. I'm like, Tree of Life sucks. <laughs> like, it's, it's very polarizing. <laughs> Yeah, it's if it's for you, great. That's true, that's, and that's fair. That's fair. Uh, if not, it's not going to be fun. It's going to be hard to like stay invested. It's again, I I kind of feel like we're zero for two almost <laughs> so far. Well, next week's not looking much better. <laughs> What's next week? The Mayflower, the Pilgrim's Adventure from nineteen seventies with Anthony Hopkins. It's like eh, it's got kind of mad reviews as well. I, we'll see. You know what? This I don't is, know. We're putting Hollywood on notice. Make some better films about these time periods. Yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> so yeah, Valhalla Rising not good. Didn't like it. But it, it similar thing though. It was good. To, it was pretty, pretty to look at. Yeah, yeah. It was just hard to watch, and it just the New World had the same effect. The the anti the right stuff effect, where it's only two hours long, but I felt like I was watching a four hour movie. Mm. Yeah. It was just like, oh my god! Like, Which is why I didn't. I was, this is why I was adamant. I'm like, I'm not rewatching the New World. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like how you can't make me? <laughs> how long can you just like look at a tree? And Terrence Malick is like, <laughs> let's find out. <laughs> let's, let's find out. <laughs> anyway, okay. Tell us about the actual Pocahontas here. <laughs> yes. So the actual Pocahontas, like I said, almost. Well, not almost. She was not involved at all romantically with john smith that's completely made up for these movies and was kind of a it was a story that was told by john smith like in some of the stories that he wrote about his own exploits okay so so the origins of it don't go to disney in the 90s the origins do go back to smith himself right okay but it's like it's bullshit like it's the timeline it doesn't match up and it's just yeah didn't happen but Pocahontas was actually born around 1596, but there's not, there's so many conflict. actually, with everything in this time period. No, there's not great records, right, right. It's Well, there's not great records, and the records that we do have conflict. Oh, okay. As far as, like, how long something lasted or, or gotcha. what year something happened. So that's going to be, that's going to be a common theme. Uh, until we get to like some more some times where you know record keeping was a little more standardized but uh so she was born in 1596 her name when she was born was actually Amanute and then she later her name changed to Matoka Matoka okay that's the one i saw okay yeah and then i i guess Pocahontas was actually a like a childhood nickname that in their language means like the playful one or hmm. kind of like it says the naughty one but it, i think it means that she's kind of precocious yes yes not like an actual troublemaker per se right but that actually fits the personality of the character we see in the disney film more so than the new world i would say as far as her being yeah. precocious and uh not wanting to follow the status quo right so that's that's where the name pocahontas comes from 
She was actually the daughter of Chief Powhatan, which is actually a title. I keep saying that wrong. I noticed that it was saying, like, you don't pronounce the H, I guess, is what I saw on the YouTube video as well. I don't know. I've I've seen it, like, I've seen Powhatan and also Powhatan. I'm not really sure which one is more correct. Okay. I think I saw Powhatan more, so that's the one that I'm going to okay. go with. But, hey, if we have listeners that are familiar with this you know, stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are knowledgeable on this, please email <laughs> us and let us know so that we can correct ourselves in the future. But she, So she was the daughter of Chief Powhatan, um, and, and that's actually, like I said, is a title. The guy's name is actually... Oh, yeah. yeah. I, you say Wa- it, so I don't Wa- have to. <laughs> Wahoon Seneca? Sure. That's the, best that yeah. I think that's the best that I can do. So that chief did actually capture John Smith at one point, although Pocahontas had nothing to do with saving his life. It was just kind of the chief spared him uh, but john smith was captured for raiding villages there for food and supplies and stuff so that's that's when john smith first met pocahontas but they didn't really have any interactions other than he kind of knew who she was hmm. basically after the fact when she gained popularity in england he was just trying to attach himself to her fame yeah, well, and before that, he would have known who she was because she was married to John Rolfe. Right. Um, she was captured. I'll, I'll okay, okay. That. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at the age of around 14 or 16 or so, there's a possibility that she was actually married to a man from her tribe named Kakum, though, again, historians not entirely in agreement as to whether or not they were actually married or whether or not the dude actually existed. That's very similar to the name of the guy in the Disney film, though. The guy she, the guy that her dad wants her to marry, that's almost exactly his name. Like, it's it's a syllable off or whatever, but yeah, I'm not, that's interesting. Yeah, so so this guy, Kakum, I, I guess he's only mentioned in, like, one English source. Okay. There's some, I guess, like, oral history from the tribe that they were married but again as far as hard historical evidence goes not really sure but anyway so she was maybe married to this guy maybe not in the first anglo-powhatan war which took place between 1610 and 1614 she was kidnapped by samuel argall who we see in the movie he's kind of like the main He's like the antagonist of the middle part of the movie. Hmm. Um, he's the guy who challenges... I don't know how much you remember about the New World, but he's the guy who... Very little. I remember being bored. <laughs> <laughs> he challenges John Smith and basically takes over the leadership position from John Smith because he says, hey, we should like kidnap and capture Pocahontas to have have like leverage okay. over the chief, which that... That is true. Like that, it, they did kidnap her for that very reason. According to the English, the she was only held captive for a few months. But I think, based on the timeline, she would have had to have been captive for at least a year. So some people say that she was. Or so, some sources say that she was kidnapped in 1610. Other sources say that she was kidnapped in 1613. Again, who knows? Maybe one, maybe the other. That's why, like. We don't know her age, her birth date, how old she was exactly. Uh, but she was held captive on the ship by Samuel Argall. During captivity, this is again another 
oral history thing that is historically, I don't want to say dubious, but... Uncertain. Uncertain. There's an oral history that says that she was raped in captivity by her English captors. However, there are a lot of historians that have issues with that, especially because it would have been kind of not in the English best interest to do that because they were trying to win the favor of her father. So that doesn't, it wouldn't really make sense for them to do that. But then again, rape is always a logical crime. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, well, no, what I mean is (laughs) you're, you're agreeing with my sarcasm. Yes. And like historically, you know, colonizers raping natives is like very common right that's 101 yeah uh, but in this specific instance it's not it's a matter of historical debate it's possible they didn't because reasons yeah yeah right it is shortly after this period of of captivity actually during her captivity that's when she's baptized mm. and converts to christianity again how much of that was consensual versus how much of that was like forced or like she had to do it to survive, you know, uncertain. I'm sure the English, the English say, Oh, well, you know, she just saw the logic and the fact that like getting baptized is the best thing that you could do. But it was like, you know, yeah, probably just a, a survival thing. So she was baptized and that's when she takes on the name Rebecca which again we see in the movie she starts going by rebecca and all the english colonizers refer to her that way and she marries john rolfe who i'll also talk about because he's not in pocahontas i don't believe no because because she was in love with john smith in that in that movie right exactly that's why i say that this movie is only barely more historically accurate because even though in the movie they show her marrying john rolfe and not john smith like she's still like pining for john smith the whole time okay. and like yeah anyways um so john rolf was a he was a british tobacco guy um <laughs> he had some some special strain of tobacco that he had started growing in the new world and made him like just filthy rich oh okay because at the time well i i guess prior to john rolf tobacco trade was mostly a spanish thing because spain had all of like the southern colonies where tobacco is typically grown oh right but john rolfe i guess somehow got these special tobacco seeds and started growing this tobacco and was selling it in england and was just making money hand over fist i mean europe could not get enough of tobacco Right, basically, it's a new drug. You could now well, you can smoke this plant for the new world, and we get this little I mean, whatever you get when you get uh, smoking. Right. Well, so actually, there's something I never thought about. So I knew tobacco was from the new world and became a big thing. And I knew James the first was famously anti-smoking. He thought he called it a foul habit or whatever. But did Europeans smoke other things before this? <laughs> you, you think of like hookah and stuff in the Middle East. Yeah. But like, were there cigarettes of other kinds or pipes? But, but pipe is tobacco. Probably. So like, well, it, it wouldn't have been widely available because you would have had to have. It would have been very expensive, I guess, if you wanted to, because you would have had to get something from, you know, from the Middle East. So it, it would have been. It's not like you can just get on Amazon and order or something back then. Like, if there were, it would have been very expensive and not a regular thing. Yeah, we're just guessing, though. It would not have been a regular thing. It's not like a thing you do every day versus once Europeans start colonizing the New World, 
and importing tobacco like crazy. Then you have people who are lighting up their pipe every day, multiple times a day. Okay, and yeah, our our guesses were basically right. It's, you look at you look. At, I'm a, I'm on the hist- history of smoking Wikipedia page, and yes, it's been around forever, but was popularized in Europe with the discovery of tobacco in the New World. Yeah, I think coffee is the same way. Oh, that makes sense. That makes I sense. I mean, so they and they had tea. Well, even tea was, but tea isn't even a British thing. It's it's a. Uh, it's also from the Middle East and Asia. Yeah, yeah it's a, yeah. like a South Asian thing. But yeah, coffee, uh, sugar, sugar's oh, another one. Right, right. And actually, this is an interesting little historical note that's not really related to this. But sugar was like available because of sugarcane, but it's also kind of expensive at that time because no one was like making corn syrup or anything like that. The only way to get sugar was from sugarcane. And because sugar was, like, just available enough that, like, you could get it, but still pretty expensive, that's where the tradition comes from for, like, you get a cake at your wedding or a cake on your birthday, because that would be the time where it would... Sugar is so rare, right. Right, that would be the time where it was like, oh, we're gonna shell out a little bit, you know, splurge a little bit on some sugar so we can make you a cake. Yes. For your special occasion. Yeah, I I did just watch a video about the history of a candy or something in the United States, and it kind of got into that exact same thing. Yeah, that's interesting. That, yeah, sugar used to be a treat, and now it's, uh, it's the cheapest food in the store. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where was I? Oh, marriage to John Rolfe. Um, so she gets married to John Rolfe, who is actually at the time kind of conflicted over whether he, a good upstanding Christian man, could marry a savage heathen <laughs> from the new world. But like once she was baptized and converted to Christianity, and changed her name to Rebecca and started wearing like dresses and doing her hair like an English woman, he was like Okay, this is that's fine. This is okay. Now, again, there are some historically, again, I don't like saying dubious, but it is kind of historically dubious accounts of, well, she was raped in captivity. And the only reason that John Rolfe married her was to kind of, quote unquote, take one for the team Mm. because she got pregnant and he didn't want to, like, mess up the peace agreement or whatever. I'm not sure how accurate that is. It's one possibility, I guess, would be the way to what say it. What I think is maybe more likely is he was kind of, he's a very savvy businessman, and I think he saw, he was going to kind of play the long game, and he saw, oh, she's going to be like this novel thing when I take her back to England. I'm going to be able to get an audience with people I normally wouldn't be able to get an audience with because I'm married to this, like, native woman. Exotic no person, yeah. Right, she's so exotic. Everyone's going to want to hang out with her and, and see her. And I think he saw it as a kind of, like, she was kind of his access ticket to the next level of the social ladder. Wow. that's And that's just my opinion. It's the, it's the equivalent of having a dog in the park to pick up girls. <laughs> Yeah, yes. Like, yes, exactly. Because that's that's probably about the level of humanity that he would have assigned to her. <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it kind of, yeah, we've talked about before about the, the threat of white supremacy that kind of is pervasive throughout British colonialism. And uh, yep. Yeah. So anyways, uh, <laughs> so John Rolfe, uh, he... Uh, Mary's Pocahontas takes her back to England with another native man named, it's another hard one to pronounce, 
Okay, never mind. This this one is easy. Uh, to, well, maybe. <laughs> Tomokomo? It's easy if you're right. <laughs> yeah. So we see him in the movie. She's er, He is with her when they go back to England. So they go back to England. They get an audience with James I and the sixth, uh, which we Same person. talked yeah. about <laughs> a little bit before. I, I'm not going to go too... I didn't go too much into him. Uh, but basically, he's... The reason that he's James the First and James the Sixth is because he was James the Sixth of Scotland, right? And then when Queen Elizabeth the First died without an heir, then the family tree is that the it went back up and over. He, yeah, he's he's a direct descendant of Henry the Eighth's sister, so he he goes he's ties to Henry the Seventh. Yeah, yes, and so he became then James the Sixth of Scotland. James the first of England, and that's actually why Jamestown is called Jamestown. Yeah, because King James. Yep, King James, and it's also we talked about it before as well. Virginia is named after uh, Queen Elizabeth the first, who is the Virgin Queen. Right. So there's so, successive. Yeah, and in Maryland, it's Queen Queen Mary, Elizabeth's sister. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary is Maryland's uh, namesake. Yep, right. yep. <laughs> so anyway, so so they go back to England. She has a son named thomas rolf i didn't look very much at it. he's just a little kid in the movie so there are people today who can actually trace their ancestry back to pocahontas i didn't do a deep dive but i did kind of do the wikipedia click on children and kind of thing and it did look like several of their descendants uh john rolf and pocahontas's descendants were kind of like early you know lawyers and judges and stuff in the early america and stuff so Mm-hmm. Maybe one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence was one of their ancestors, or, or sorry, I always say uh, the descendants. And yeah. yeah, so no one super famous, but people definitely involved in the history of the United States and early years of the United States into the 1700s, 1800s. Like you said, people today that could easily trace back to Pocahontas. Yep. Yeah. Um, so like, again, we see in the movie, uh, Pocahontas, when she's in England, she gets sick, some sort of illness um actually her i think her and her son both got sick she died Mm. and she was actually buried in a church saint george's church in gravesend but like a it was kind of like an unmarked sort of pauper's grave situation Hmm. and then the church burned down oh so there's actually not like a place that is pocahontas's grave anymore huh like they're not really sure but there is i just like briefly saw something about there's like a even to this day there's like a movement to try and get her remains like exhumed and brought back to virginia okay but again i'm not really i didn't really look into any specifics of you know the five w's on any of that but anyway so she she died uh in england of a sickness her son was kind of like left in the care of just some random guy so that john rolf could then go back to and make that money uh, the colonies yeah um and john Rolfe actually married again a third time because he so his wife and first kid died on his trip over to virginia then he meets pocahontas marries her goes back to england then pocahontas dies and he goes back to virginia and then he's killed in the massacre of 1622 by some natives who were disgruntled by all the like obvious objectively horrible things that the colonizers were doing to them so there was like a a bunch of attacks and stuff led by a guy named 
Opa <laughs> Opa Chenna Canoe? Yeah, and the the uh the uncomfortable laughter is actually the second syllable, so you got that perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so this Opa Chenna Canoe uh starts leading these uh I think he's the chief actually after Chief Powhatan, and he was like this, you know, great Powhatan warrior, and then he started uh leading these attacks and in one of these attacks John Rolfe was killed in 1622. Okay. And and so so rewinding slash book ending, I kind of stopped John Smith's story when he was captured and we kind of went over and did the Pocahontas thing. So now let's let me kind of finish out uh John Smith. No oh, oh there's not there's not much. I mean they kind of honestly I still think the most interesting things about John Smith were before he ever came over to Jamestown in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh so yes, he was captured and released and again, like you said, not likely through the intervention of Pocahontas. They were even some stories that he had misinterpreted the whole thing and he was never actually in danger and that it was actually a ceremony basically bringing him into the tribe as part of like a oh, peace, yeah. peacekeeping thing. So I, I think I, I read something about that. Yeah, like it was it was possible that they were trying to like be friendly to him and he was like, oh, these savages are trying to murder me. Right, right. <laughs> basically, because he did though help establish the trade between the Powhatan tribe and the colony. So it helped his clout enough that he was elected leader or elected president of the colony in 1608 uh, because he had kind of helped foster this relationship that basically saved them. Um, and then while he was in charge, which is only, he was only in charge for like a few months or a year or whatever, uh, but that's where he established his famous those who don't work don't eat policy, which makes a lot of sense if you think about these upper class people not wanting to work and he's like well then you're not eating if you're not helping provide for this colony you're not eating the food that we have because yeah we do see him implement that in the new world okay actually says that exact line those who don't work don't eat nice nice and then he was injured in 1609 there's basically like just a accidental gunpowder explosion in the colony and he was injured so badly he had to go back to england so Similar-ish to what we said in the film Pocahontas, he kind of does end up taking a taking a bullet, and it's not lethal, but he gets on the ship and goes back, and a very anticlimactic ending. It's kind of weird, right? But he did go back for an injury, and that's not at all what happens in the New World. How do yeah? How, what do they do with him? Uh, it's when it's after the the battle scene, and him and Pocahontas are kind of beefing, and he ends up like going back. He gets basically orders to go do some exploring in a different part, like up, like in uh, farther north, like New England, you know, Canada area. And that's accurate. He did. He did. He gets hurt, goes back, and then comes back and kind of goes to New England when he comes back to the New World. Oh well, he in in new in uh, in the New World, there's no like explosion. There's no like him oh, getting okay. hurt. It's just he kind of goes from one part of the colony to another part of the colony, and then I think oh. Because then there's a scene where Pocahontas then, like, thinks that he's maybe dead or something, and then she hears someone, like, overhears a conversation that he's alive, and then they, like, meet up again in England or something. It's, hmm. like, at the end of the movie. Yeah. Which didn't happen, but anyway. So, yeah, so yeah, he went to, went to England to recover, does come back to North America in 1614, so about five years after he had uh, left when he was hurt is in new England and 
he's the person who coined the term New England. So we still use New England all the time today to refer to those kind of six states up there. That's that's John Smith's phrase. He's the one that called that area New England. Huh. And just kind of spent the rest of his life. Actually, I didn't even write down the year he died, but he, he just spent the rest of his life writing and mapping. And so a lot of the future colonization is kind of, he definitely helped. Like people in England knew a lot of what they knew about the new world from John Smith's maps and writings and stories. And so kind of the excitement to continue to colonize what will become the United States is because of a lot of the work John Smith did exploring and, and uh, telling about the area for England audiences. So that's why he is ultimately very relevant. If you're gonna, if you're going to kind of you know give a Lafayette a pass to some of these early early people, you know you could definitely argue that John Smith, though yes, not a United States citizen, did go a long way toward promoting the colonization that ultimately leads to the United States of America. So yeah, very interesting fellow there, uh, Radcliffe. Uh, actually, let me come back to Radcliffe. <laughs> uh, Chief Chief uh, Powhatan or Powhatan again. He has the he has the longer name, and Powhatan is actually more of kind of referenced like where he was from, and then the tribe kind of get, well, gets named after. Is the name of the tribe the Powhatan tribe? But I'm saying the tribe gets its name because he kind of united all these disparate tribes under his umbrella. Oh right, it was a it was almost like a confederacy of multiple tribes. Yes, yes, yeah. So, like, power is kind of like where he's from, and then when he takes control of all these tribes, the umbrella term becomes his name slash where he's from. And so that's, but yeah, so to the point that he was kind of in charge of ten to 15,000 people. So you think of Indian tribes, Native American tribes being these kind of, you know, more insular kind of small pockets, but it's like, no, he was the chief over thousands of people yeah now we don't really know a lot about him he's basically only documented through his encounters with the english and a lot if you look at his you're going through like his wikipedia page it's basically just a lot of here's what the tribe was doing here's the tribe's encounters with the colonists but it's not about him it's about the tribe and so like he's not really talked about as an individual all that often if that makes sense and yeah and you kind of talked about then uh, it was actually the same year John Radcliffe died that things disintegrated into all-out war between the colonists and the Powhatan, which is what you mentioned, the first Anglo-Powhatan War, which then even the uh, one thing I read was that the marriage between John Rolfe and Pocahontas was maybe, maybe even part of like a peace deal uh, settlement to kind of calm things down between oh, them. Oh, yeah, I didn't even talk about that. It was like a... And it went both ways, too. So it it showed... The natives, it showed the the Powhatan tribe that like, oh, okay, like we are willing to kind of like integrate with you and be friendly with you. But it also their marriage then demonstrated to the English that, oh, you know, these people, they're people. I mean, kind of. (laughs) They kind of thought they were people. They at at the very least, they could convert to Christianity and become people. (laughs) Wow. Wow. But you know what I mean? Like that's. It it showed that they weren't just like mindless savages. Like, oh, she can she, look. Look, here's a native woman who can speak English, and she got baptized and changed her name. And she's one of the good ones. <laughs> it led to a. Uh, it did lead to a peace agreement or peace that I think it actually lasted for several years, um, and they called it the Peace of Pocahontas. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So John Radcliffe. Again, I don't have a lot, but it's it stands out. So John Radcliffe. 
who again is just kind of used as an amalgamation or proxy in the Disney film, but he was based on a real person. He was also called Luckless Captain Ratcliffe. <laughs> so we don't know much about his early life. He's just kind of a lifelong sailor type and just kind of always working on ships and stuff. Um, and he, so he's actually, in, I feel like in the Disney film, they don't even make him necessarily a captain of one of the ships. He's just like the rich guy in charge of the expedition, but he was a ship captain. He was captain of one of the three ships, just not the one we see in the Disney film. And then actually early on in the colony, he and Smith actually teamed up to boot out the first president of the colony who was like hoarding food and stuff. So Radcliffe and Smith were actually on the same side there. But Radcliffe wasn't particularly popular and didn't actually finish his term as president, whether he abdicated or abdicated down, sounds like he's like king, whether he whether he stepped down, resigned, or was actually booted is maybe debated. But uh, basically, he just kind of had bad trade policies. And he's like doing a building project that everyone thought was dumb and unnecessary. Like they even called it Radcliffe's Palace because like, why are we wasting our time on this building project? Anyway, um, and then in 1609 or early 1610, so this is after John Smith had already gone back to England from his injury, Radcliffe is captured and they kind of baited him in with a trade deal that was a trap. Like anyway, so they capture him and they skinned him alive. Nice. And as they, but like, they took their time. And so like, he's like tied up at the stake and they skin him alive and just kind of toss each piece of his flesh into the fire while he watched. And then once he was completely skinned, they burned him alive. Yeah. And that's something that maybe people don't realize is you can actually live for quite a while with no skin. (sighs) Tell me about it. No, that's a... Uh, I mean, not forever. Like you, you will die, but it's yeah. not instantaneous by any means, right? Uh, yeah, we don't need to go into too much detail. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, mom. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they don't—they left that out of the Disney film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yeah, that's how—that's how—that was how John. I mean, it wasn't a lot, but it just like I read that and like my jaw dropped. I was just like, oh, yeah. And then my other kind of random notes here. So they mention. Uh, at the beginning of the Disney film, that the Powhatan had recently defeated the local Massawamak tribe. That actually could be fairly accurate-ish. That that there's a tribe that was in this area and was kind of nomadic, and they were kind of in the Jamestown Powhatan region. But even their Wikipedia page for the whole tribe is like three sentences. So it was a good choice for them to write into the film. I guess would be the way to say it. And then a couple things that I wasn't actually certain on, so I did have to look them up. Pocahontas's friend in the film is a raccoon because it's a Disney film. <laughs> raccoons are native to North America, which, I mean, I'm just so used to seeing raccoons everywhere. It didn't occur to me that I didn't I didn't know where they were from. So they are native to North America. That's also something that they address in the New World. Oh, okay. Coonskin hats, I guess, makes sense. I guess I never thought about it. Yeah, but like, so when they take Tomokomo and Pocahontas to England, they also bring along coonskins, some animals that are native to the Americas, including a raccoon okay. and a bald eagle. Ah, okay, okay. And the other one, and this is just like a one-second shot in the film, but they show some kids with like what I thought looked like lacrosse sticks, like the native tribe playing like mm. kids playing lacrosse, and they toss that down and then kind of run off, and that's the only time you see it. But lacrosse is based off a native american game yes and i just i i didn't realize i did i had no idea so like some of these sports they came later or they have other origins but no lacrosse is a native american game and that kind of blew me away i i think 
even American football has certain characteristics that are descended from some mm. some sort of sport that the Native Americans would play. I mean, it also has origins of like rugby and stuff. Right, too. right. Huh. Um, and just and regular soccer. But yeah. So one more thing I did want to say. This was just kind of a little side thing, but I had it in my notes. Um, apparently, in Pocahontas's trip to England. I guess it overlaps with the time that Squanto, the famous Native American that we all learn about in elementary school as being involved in the first Thanksgiving. Which we'll get to that probably next time, yeah. Was also in England at the same time, and it's possible that they met each other. Oh, I was thinking the the, the uh, first Thanksgiving stuff was enough later. Or it... it, it oh, yeah. It, oh, never mind. Yeah, basically it's like 10 years later. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Okay, that's he crazy. Was, he was actually, I think just older than pocahontas okay well we may yeah, get we, and we may get the squanto next time here then. born in around 1585 so about 10 years older did you cover all your people then um yeah so in the cast section of the movie on wikipedia and in like the credits it names some other people that are historical real people that yeah. are historical but it, they don't really have a lot to do in the movie and also they're there's not a ton about them okay. historically anyway so i okay. mean i could there's like we see queen anne in the movie we see king james in the movie we see that guy samuel argal like there's wait which queen anne the one that was married to king james, oh queen anne of denmark i was getting her confused with the queen anne from the favorite that would have been much later oh yeah no no no, no. different one okay okay not so not yet yeah, not not the anne who ruled in her own right yeah that's where i was confused right so, I guess, ultimately, what happened to the colony of Jamestown? Uh, it looks like it was a relatively successful colony until 1676, when it was burned down during Bacon's Rebellion, which we might actually talk about in a later episode. But that was Nathaniel Bacon leading a rebellion against the governor of Virginia at the time. And it says it was rebuilt. But in 1699, the colonial capital of Virginia was moved to Williamsburg, and then Jamestown basically was not uh, a thing anymore. It kind of just became a ghost town then. No, it's it's just not, it just, no one lived there. It was just, it was like, it was done. That's what a ghost town is, yeah. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that, you can still go there today, and they, it's like an, there's an archaeological site where they are doing archaeological digs, basically. But it's also, there's a museum, there's like a, it's a historical site now, but it's not, okay. it's not a town anymore. It's not like, you know, like New Amsterdam became New York and you can just go to New York like it's still a city today. Gotcha. Or Philadelphia or, or Washington. Jamestown is, is is more of a site. Actually, I, hear, I even found a, on Wikipedia here, here's a drawing or a sketch from 1854 of the ruins of Jamestown. So, okay, yeah, it's more of an archaeological site now today. Okay, that makes sense. So why is it called... The first, honestly, here's the reason I thought it was still an established city today that like people just lived in Jamestown, Virginia, which I guess based on what I'm seeing here is that's kind of uh, very, very ignorant of me. But it's called the first permanent settlement. Well, if it's not around today, how is it permanent? Well, like as in permanent versus temporary, they didn't, it wasn't <laughs> temporary on purpose. It was burned down and then moved. Like it still lasts. That's ninety years. I, I, I yeah. I guess I guess that feels like a semantic argument to me. Uh, uh, so I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. But like, I thought permanent meant was still a city today. Well, permanent as in they weren't planning on going back to England. Uh, no, I so uh, yeah. I guess yeah. That never occurred to me. I guess settlement means permanent then, right? 
Oh, because you would have a temporary settlement if you're like in Antarctica doing research and you plan on leaving. I guess you're just saying. Yeah. Okay. Like if you just show up and set up some tents and build a fire, like that's you can call that your settlement, but you're not planning on staying there yeah. for the rest of your life. Okay, so that, that's basically my misunderstanding of the term permanent settlement. I guess. I thought they were using permanent to mean lasted forever. They were just meaning it to mean where people decided to live. Yeah. Yeah, okay. No, I, I get that distinction now, but actually all my life growing up hearing about Jamestown, never understood that. I guess it'd be like... The difference between, like, the first moon missions and then, like, trying to set up an actual colony on Mars. Like, that would be a permanent settlement. Even if it failed. Whether or not it gets blown up by little green spacemen 50 years after you build it. Yes, the permanent was about intent, not result. Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I learned something today. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about Rotten Tomatoes. And why don't you do Oscars and Rotten Tomatoes for New World while I pull up. Ah, okay. Um... New World was nominated for just one Oscar for cinematography, which, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful movie. Right. He does make pretty films. Yes. Yeah. yeah actually, yeah, you know what? A Terrence Malick film on in the background on super low volume would be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's not really fun to like watch and pay attention to for two hours in a row. Or he's the one that supposedly, like, he he discovers the movie in the edit. Have you heard this? Like, he just films and films and films and films. He just wants footage. He gets oh. an insane amount of footage and then almost, like, writes the movie after the fact based yeah. on all the footage he has. I've actually seen interviews with crew members from Terrence Malick Films talking about, like, oh, we shot enough footage that with the footage that we cut, we could have made, like, two other movies. Yeah, yeah. And, like, people who are cast to be main characters end up getting cut out completely. Yeah, and then there's also stuff that he he does, like, stuff that's very Terrence Malicky, where it'll be like, oh, we're shooting this scene, and then all of a sudden he'll see some bird, and he'll be like, hey, let's go film that bird for, like, three hours. <laughs> like, that bird looks interesting. Let's film it. And they're like, yeah. we're shooting, like, a, they're like Christian Bale's right here yeah. <laughs> doing this acting. And he's like, nah, we gotta get that. Yeah. And then other stuff, too, where he'll, like... uh I was actually I was I was watching a video, a YouTube video called Why Do Terrence Malick Movies Look Like That? <laughs> oh. And in that video the guy tells a story about actually on the set of New World and it was just an example of like little quirky stuff that Terrence Malick does when he's making movies, but like Christian Bale was like taking a nap on set like in between scenes or something and Terrence Malick like woke him up in the middle of his nap and said, "Hey, like you have to go shoot now." Like he does a lot of improv stuff. Like, uh, this isn't going to be in the script or anything, but like, all right, wake up, you're in character now, and go go talk to that person, and I'm going to film it. Huh. Which, I can kind of respect if the result was more interesting. Does that make sense? Like, I I, I kind of think that's an interesting approach. But there are people who think that the result is like the coolest, best thing ever. Huh. Yeah, so I guess he. Yeah, I guess the way to say it is, he has, he has a niche that I can respect, but that I don't enjoy. Yes. That's the perfect way to say it. Okay. I feel the same way. <laughs> okay. Okay. Bad, Badlands was good from uh from like from like the seventies. That's the only one of his films I actually liked. But uh, so what is it on Rotten Tomatoes then? On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a sixty three percent critic score and a fifty eight percent audience score. Which that's actually a lot higher than I thought the audience score would be for this movie. Okay, and actually kind of lower than the critic score because Tree of Life has a way higher critic score. I think. Yeah. So the I guess the audience score it's it's a hundred thousand plus ratings, which at fifty eight percent 
I would imagine that there's not very many people that are rating it around 58%. There's probably a lot of people that are like, this is really good. And a lot of people like, this is complete shit. And it just kind of averages out to be right in the middle. Well, and that's that's exactly what Rotten Tomatoes is. It's the percentage of thumbs yeah. up versus thumbs down. So it's completely yeah. different than like an IMDb where you're rating it out of 10, which is kind of okay, interesting yeah. from a statistical standpoint that the results end up being similar often because that's kind of yeah. just a coincidence in the way groups of people work. But And it's a... It's a 6.7 out of 10 on IMDb. So, okay, yeah. So, the uh, yeah, it's interesting that more than half of those 100,000 people said, Yeah, I, I, I liked it. Basically, decided to give it a thumbs up versus it can, some of those could have been tepid. Now, at the same time, there could be a, made a little bit of self selection where if you have a really long movie by Terrence Malick, some people are just are not watching it. And so, people who well, already like Terrence Malick are more likely to see it. But and it might also be a sunk cost thing, like oh, I'm gonna like I psychologically yeah, you should watch it too. <laughs> unconsciously trick myself into thinking that I liked it more than I did because I just spent two hours watching that. Yeah, <laughs> and if I if I click thumbs down, that means it was a waste of time. <laughs> and Pocahontas, uh, you mentioned already had uh, we did have two Oscars, which is crazy, and it's basically similar but reversed. It's a 55 critic percentage slash 64 audience. That surprises me. I would think that the audience score would be a lot higher because of all the... I mean, it's like, it's a... For people my age, for like millennials, it's like a beloved classic. Like everybody watched that movie growing up hundreds of times. But I'm curious... Yeah, I I guess I would be curious if you had revisited it because uh, it's... Like I said, I would call it the least ambitious Disney movie I've ever seen. Like, they're not even trying. I say that, it's not bad. It's just not good. They're They're not doing anything. So it, I, there's nothing objectionable about it, but it's also crazy short. Like, it's like 80 minutes. Yeah. And like 80 minutes, the credits are rolling. I'm like, it almost feels like rushed and low effort. And apparently they put a lot of time into the music and won Oscars for it. But everything else is, they're not even trying. And it's just meh. So yeah, kind of another week with uh, movies we are not particularly fans of, and we are hoping to get into some better films. I will say, this is another Mel Gibson-Linda Hunt collab. Oh, true. Linda Hunt is the voice of the the old tree lady in this film. Yes, yes. So if you want to see a better version of a Mel Gibson-Linda Hunt collab, go watch Year of Living Dangerously, but even that movie wasn't great. And uh, just fast forward through all the Mel Gibson stuff and just only watch the scenes with Linda Hunt. Okay, but it is, a, okay, even though we weren't big fans of Year of Living Dangerously, it's way better than either of these films. Oh, 100%. I would yeah, watch yeah. Year of Living Dangerously again before I watched either of these movies again. And I didn't even yes. really like Year of Living Dangerously. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yes, we I think we've thoroughly covered all of the Jamestown stuff. And next week, we don't go too far into the future. We're going to flash forward uh, just a decade or so to get into the Pilgrims and the first Thanksgiving and all the Mayflower stuff with the 1979 film Mayflower, The Pilgrim's Adventure, starring Anthony Hopkins. Okay.